We come together not to talk about the stuff of the world that we live in, but the stuff of eternity. Jesus Christ came to take our place, pay the price for our sin that we might have something to talk about. Doesn't that excite you? It does me. Well, we're glad we're here together and uh, we are continuing in this series called Faith in Action. And uh, I've been enjoying, I've been writing out my book of James. Have you been doing that? I hope you have because it's been awesome. I've really enjoyed slowing down because I'm reading the book James over and over and over again. But to write it out with all of you, I've been able to slow down again and really, really enjoy soaking it in. So continue doing it. If you're a little bit behind, it's okay. You can catch up. Uh, A lot of sayings in this world, aren't there? You've probably heard some. I picked out three that caught me and my attention. Uh, Never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. Anybody know who said that? Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, one of the greatest ball strikers in the game of baseball. Good saying. Uh, Another person said, strive not to be a success, but rather to be of value. Isn't that an interesting saying? Strive not to be a success, but to be of value. And Albert Einstein, I think, as smart as he was, really was smart in understanding what we're here for, and that is to be of value to the community around Uh, This last one, Uh, the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. Isn't that true? True. It's like the people who say, I want to write a, I want to write a book. Well, then just start writing. Those are very helpful sayings, but have you heard some sayings that are not so helpful? Kind of sayings that you go, whatever, you know, like, for example, a watch pot never You got it, you know. Yeah, well, it'll never boil if you don't turn the heat on. It'll never boil if you don't turn the heat on right. Yeah, sure. But when the heat's on correctly, if you watch it, it'll boil. How about this one? An apple a day keeps the... Well, is that really helpful? Who really said that to begin with? And were they eating an apple a day and going, you know, I haven't been to the doctor for years. And it's because of the apples that I've been eating. How about this one? The grass is always greener. Is that true? How many of you would say, I found that is not as true as they think it is? It's not really a helpful saying, is it? How about this last one? Here's the last one I want to give. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Uh, That was a mumble. But (laughs) words will never hurt me. Words will never hurt me. Is that really helpful? Because if you've had the experience that I've had, words can sting. They can pierce the very heart of a soul. Words hurt. Why do we share these sayings that really are not true? Why do we deceive ourselves with uh, soothing, or at least seemingly soothing words that instead burn invisible scars upon our body. Why do we do that? Why do, why do we persist in deception, the deceptions that words cannot harm? Because I think every one of us in this room know how deeply words can 
hurt us, can scar us and harm us. Well, today we are really talking about uh, our tongues. The words we say. Uh, and, and if you've ever been on the receiving end of a, a verbal bully's wrath, you would say, uh, I've, I've been there, I've been hurt, I've been stung. Uh, and unfortunately, for most of us, we have been ones who have spoken words that hurt, that sting, and that scar. So I'm asking you today, let's really focus for a minute. I know you got stuff in your world that's causing you to think about it. Focus today on James chapter 3, where last week in chapter 2, uh, James's half-brother, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, called upon us to be aware of how we view others and that we do not show a partiality to others. And it's really a perspective that we have. And, and we take the place of God and we start judging other people. Today, uh, we look at another issue of the heart, which uh, is the, that the heart... Um, continues to be the center uh, of our lives where out of the heart we speak words that can either bless or curse. Can either be, uh, words can either lift up or tear down. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be amazing if at the point when we came to faith in Christ, our salvation, that our inherited perfection, because we know when we come to faith in Christ, we are made perfect. Before God, we are clean and perfect. Now, our lives are learning to live in that perfection and in that uh, new state that we're in. But wouldn't it be great that if the Holy Spirit who transformed our hearts at that point would uh, be in an immediate place where he would transform everything we do so that we would act, that we would think, that we would talk perfectly in line with God's will and God's way. That our old nature wouldn't have any sway when it comes to our new nature. That's, that's not the truth. It is the truth, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is, Christ, is in Christ, he is a new creation. In that, you can stop there and just meditate on that. We're new, a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. Our great challenge as Christians, as followers of Christ, is found in our willingness to submit and to be controlled by the Holy Spirit instead of our old nature. Would you agree? That's the challenge. Uh, we go through each day uh, constantly having to let the Holy Spirit lead and guide rather than that old nature. Paul said again in Galatians chapter 5, he said, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. How many of you said recently, I wish I would do the right thing for God. That's not the way I wanted to act. That's not the way I wanted to think. That's not the way I wanted to be because I know it's not God's way. Holy Spirit, in the old nature, there's this war that goes on in each of our lives as followers of Christ. 
And it's so evident when it comes to our tongues, isn't it? Uh, And when we think about the tongues, we have to then go back to think about our hearts. So let's pray this morning and then get into James chapter 3. Father, our, our prayer this morning is that you would clear from our minds all the pressures and the strains and the things that are on our hearts and minds from the lives we live that the lives we live and help us this morning to just focus on what you want to teach us about our tongues. May we speak as the psalmist. May our may our hearts mindset be as the psalmist who said, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're people of the word. When we come here, we want to see what God says in the word uh, and determine how uh, our lives can live it out in a way that brings him glory. And in James chapter three, if we look closely, we'll discover that there are three important truths revealed to us as Christians about our tongues. And the first truth is that the tongue can be a powerful uh, tool used to direct. And we're looking through one verses one through five. Before James gets into uh, the use of our tongues, he really uh, relays a strong cautionary truth and a serious warning. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged, how? With greater strictness. First, not many of you should become teachers. So you see, in the churches that James was writing to, it appears by uh, deduction here that there were many who uh, were self-appointed teachers. They, too many far, uh, by the looks of it, self-appointed teachers, didaskaloi is the original word in the language, uh, teachers. Uh, and they were in this role of disseminating what they thought was truth. And he, he was seeing a problem happen and arise. In the Jewish synagogues from which all these believers, most of them being Jewish Christians, had come from, rabbis were the highly respected teachers. Even today, there are still rabbis around teaching the Old Testament in the Jewish um, faith. And, of course, every parent's uh, great desire would be for their son to become a rabbi. Now, their motivation may not have been right, but their desire was for him to become a rabbi. People looked up to rabbis. Uh, And of course, it wasn't a problem to respect and admire uh, the rabbis on account of the fact that they were the teachers of the sacred text. But unfortunately, that admiration went beyond just respect uh, into a place of almost worship, which is, of course, totally against God's uh, truth that we're to only worship it or God himself. And so it was totally out of place. And here, I think James is saying he wanted those who consider the role of spiritual teacher to understand the high calling, but yet with a caution, a strong and important caution. Jesus even cautioned about this. He, he, he strongly called out the Jewish leaders 
uh, on this very topic in Matthew 23, 6, uh, verse 6, and then in verse 11, 12, he said, and they, talking about the rabbis, they love the place of honor at feasts and, and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. The greatest, verse 11, says, greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus had strong cautionary words for those who were in a place of teaching and teaching God's word primarily. And of course, we know it's not wrong to be a teacher. Otherwise, I wouldn't want to stand here. Uh, it, it, it is a good thing to teach God's word. Paul said in, uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, this, uh, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is an elder, a teacher of God's People, he desires a noble task. So it's a good thing. It's okay. He also said to, about himself, woe to me in 1 Corinthians 9, if I do not preach the gospel. He knew he was called. He knew that was God's role for his life. And yet he understood the caution on the other side of it. May he never become more important in his own eyes than the word and giving glory to God. So he points this out very, very specifically. Our words as teachers, and not only as your pastor, am I the only teacher, there are others in this room that help to teach the word of God through small groups, through children's ministry, through uh, other opportunities we come together and teach. There are teachers amongst us. And we may, must never forget that as teachers... We hold great influence. But also, guess what? Do you have children? Yes, many of us do here. Guess what? You're a teacher. You're a teacher through your life, through your words. What you believe, your worldview comes out through what you teach, through how you raise up those children and those grandchildren. And so he reminds us, teachers, your role is important. It's, it's a calling but be cautious. He also says, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We who teach. So, okay, that means all of us in this room. We all teach in some way, don't we? Through our words and through our actions. He said, don't forget, all of us, all of us at, at the end of our lives will have to take account and be held accountable for what we teach. We all will. Take some time and, and just uh, consider Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. That in the end, if you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior, you will bow before Jesus, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, and you will be held accountable. And it will be seen whether your name is written in the book of life. Or as Paul said to the believer, Paul said, in Romans 14, 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So the roles that we play in our lives, whatever you do, some way, are, are we teaching? Yes, in ways through our words and through our actions, we are teaching and we will be held accountable. May we all hear that wonderful, wonderful phrase, well done, 
good and faithful servant. And we will be held, as James says here, with an accountability that is one of a greater strictness. As teachers, as followers of Christ, we will be held up to the measure and the mark of Jesus, our Savior. So James is serving the church here by giving a cautionary word, by reminding us, uh, as he did in James 1.19, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But I love James because he's a real person. He's down there. You know, when we read uh, the apostles and, and we read the Old Testament, sometimes we get this sense that they were superhuman super beings, that they were far above us. But James is, is making it very clear. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. Isn't that just down to earth? He's including himself in the fact that he is not perfect, that we all stumble. And the word stumble is a failure to do what is right, either moral failure or in the case that he's talking about, uh, our failure to use our tongues well. Not in a way that is sinful, but in a way that is in a holy way. Proverbs 29 says, who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin. No, no, we all stumble. As a matter of fact, I love how Paul says it in Romans, for all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if you're here today or watching online, uh, this is a key verse that we all need to remember because salvation does not come until we first of all understand we have all stumbled. And the word we're gonna uh, focus in on in Romans chapter three, we all have sinned. And sin is what keeps us from an eternal relationship with the Father. So James is saying we all have stumbled and Paul is, is maybe make, making it a little bit more personal. We've all sinned. Are we mindful of this fact in our lives that we're all sinners? But God has made a way through Christ. Now, here's where James really starts to zero in on the topic at hand in James chapter 3, where he talks about a perfect man. Um, which one of us is a perfect man? Uh, he's, by the way, not talking about sinless perfection. What he's really talking about here in the word use of the word perfect is maturity. Not, uh, who is a perfect man? Um, you know, who is a spiritually mature person? Have you ever asked yourself, what really is spiritual maturity? This thing that I desire, that I hope we all desire, what is it? Will I ever know that I've arrived at it? Here's my little um, definition. Spiritual maturity, to put it simply, is when the Christian's life is under the control and direction of the Holy Spirit. When our lives are fully under con the control and direction of the Holy Spirit, we're spiritually mature. Now, it's true that there are times when that happens, so at that moment, we're mature. But then we walk away from the direction of the Holy Spirit and we become immature again. So spiritual maturity is, I don't believe, ever going to happen while we're in this life. I think we can be moving toward it. I think we can have a great success by God's grace and glory. But spiritual maturity is, 
a, a lifetime movement towards something. I, I think spiritual maturity uh, is being deep in Christ. Sometimes that uh, spiritual maturity will demonstrate itself in our knowledge. But I want to be sure and cautionary here that there are a lot of people who know a lot of things at the, about the Bible, but they are not spiritually mature because they are not under the direction, guidance of the Holy Spirit. Christian maturity requires a radical reorganizing of one's priorities, priorities, changing over from the pleasing of self to pleasing God and learning to obey God. A radical reorganization of our lives. Stop and think about your life right now. How organized is your life and your worldview to, uh, uh, to have a mindset of every day waking up saying, I am going to focus on doing nothing but pleasing God in the things I do, where I go, what I watch, what I say. Christian maturity requires radical reorganization. And the good news is it's possible. This is not a pie in the sky kind of thing. It's possible. When we become a Christian, we're given all we need for spiritual maturity, to become spiritually mature. Second Peter 1.3 says it so clearly. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory, and excellence. Did you catch that? There is a knowing, there is a knowledge, but who is it about? It's about Jesus. The more we know about Jesus and the more we seek to act and be like Jesus, the more spiritually mature we become. You can tell when someone is spiritually mature and under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. You can tell it a mile away. I can tell you this much, the number one way I get myself into trouble is through the ill-thought use of my tongue. I have said some things that I should never have said. Harsh, hurtful, even harmful. Yes, your pastor is not always mature. There are moments when I am not keeping in step with the Holy Spirit and then my tongue shows it because I say things that I shouldn't say. Now, thank God that that is getting less and less in my life because all I want is Christ to reign in and through me by his Holy Spirit. And so each day I wake up and say, God, do your work in me. Holy Spirit, control my thoughts, where I go, what I do, and what I say. So James here in this chapter says, if we bridle our tongues, we should be able to bridle the whole body. Isn't that interesting? How important the little tongue is. And, and so as a good teacher, and he's very good at this, he uses illustrations. Look at the illustrations that he's giving to us um, as he says in verse three and four. If we put bits into the mouths of horses, and then four, look at the ships also. He uses uh, bits 
and ships, and then he goes on to talk about sparks. Uh, the tongue is a small member, he says in verse 5. And I, I think James's point of comparison of these things is not that uh, so much a, a matter of control, because the tongue really doesn't control our, our entire being. It, it, is, uh, it shows where the control is lacking. It's talking about our hearts, isn't it? The tongue and, the, and uh, uh, the way it reveals itself is what is revealing about our hearts. That the spirit is not in control. When the Holy Spirit is at work in the submitted Christian's life, the Holy Spirit slowly but surely strips away our sinful characteristics and substitutes them with godly characteristics. Do you feel that when, the God, when God's work is happening in your life? Do you, do you sense it? And do you, do you recognize it in your speech, in what you say, how you say it? When we submit to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, he creates in us a new heart, and we begin to be more and more like Jesus. And it's especially seen in what we say then what will come out of our mouths will be words that are more loving and humble and kind and encouraging, words that will be filled with patience, peace, wisdom, holiness, words that reflect the Holy Spirit has transformed our hearts, words that will boast only in the glorious nature and the magnificence of our gracious and forgiving Heavenly Father. That's what happens. Are we letting God, are we letting the Holy Spirit do this work in our hearts? Ask yourself that question right now. Am I letting him do this work in my heart? As you ask yourself this question, we're talking about um, how powerful uh, the tongue is as a tool and it can be used, as James says in his first portion, to direct like uh, a horse's bit. If you've ever been on a horse, you know you can move that horse because that little bit in his mouth. Or if you've ever sailed a boat, that little tiny rudder, when you move it, it moves that ship. Then he moves on there and he says, our second point is that the tongue can be a powerful tool used to destroy. Used to direct, uh, to direct and then used to destroy he says in verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Again, a beautiful teacher of, uh, and, and using illustrative imagery. Uh, you know, we've seen entire communities uh, burn to the ground because of a small spark of maybe a campfire or uh, someone who's thrown a cigarette, lit cigarette out and it's caught fire. We know the truth of this. We've seen it. Yet James goes even further in verse 6 where he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And if you hadn't already caught your attention, and set on fire by hell. He is not mincing his words here. In this one verse, we discover a number of things. 
A number of truths about the tongue and how it destroys. Uh, Firstly, it says our words contain a world of unrighteousness. Now, world there is talking about uh, 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 not the earth, the physical universe. He's talking about, I believe, a system of belief, uh, our old nature, which was an entire and continues to be an entire system of thought, which is opposed to God's glory and is all about ourselves and not about God. Paul said in Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put off your old self because it's corrupt. Uh, The old nature that we still have to deal with is corrupt. It is a system of thinking that does not bring glory to God. And the tongue, the tongue is the one that shows if we are living in that system or living in God's system. The tongue betrays which worldview we are truly following. Our words contain a world of unrighteousness. Also, our words can defile and set the direction of our entire lives. Be careful what you say. You've heard that before. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. To stain means to soil or to defile. And Jesus, our Lord, said it so well in Matthew, or pardon me, Mark 7, 20 to 23. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Man, that's talking about an old nature that is ruling and guiding and directing as opposed to the new nature under the control of the Holy Spirit. The greater, to the greater extent, we are known by what we say and how we say it. The words we use give away the place where our heart stands and can chart the course of our lives. And this applies to, of course, good and bad. James is speaking, though, here particularly of the negative. Words that are gossip, are slander. Words that bring false accusation, lying, bad language. Yeah, cursing, bad language. This morning, I read in the newspaper of a couple of pastors who are saying, you know, uh, I find it quite acceptable that uh, the appropriate use of bad language uh, is, uh, is quite acceptable. And he was telling about his life growing up and how cursing became almost an art form. I guess he hasn't read Ephesians 4 as a pastor which says foul language is not, should not be a part of our lives. So our mouths, our tongues, are not meant for these wicked things. Our mouths, our tongues, are meant to bring life, encouragement, peace. 
So our words can defile and set the direction of our entire life. When it talks about direction here, I'm talking about the whole flavor of our life. Does it bring glory? When people come into our presence, do they leave feeling lifted up? Do they feel that they have been with someone who loves and desires to bring glory to God? Do they feel encouraged to know Jesus? the one who transforms the heart. Third, our evil words, it says, are set on fire by hell. He, again, as I said, he's holding nothing back at this point. The word hell is the word Gehenna. Uh, It's not used anywhere else except here in the synoptic gospels. Literally means the Valley of Hinnon. It literally means a place. Uh, There is a deep gorge on the southwest side of Jerusalem. It's where uh, garbage and trash, bodies of dead animals, and even executed, executed criminals were dumped, and that fire continually burned. It was a location at one time that the Canaanites and other pagan um, people uh, used it to make burnt offerings, even, even uh, lifting up uh, offerings of, of babies, children, to their god, Moloch. And then along came a godly king, Josiah. And Josiah stopped the practice and he deemed the place unclean and wholly unfit for anything other than just garbage. And Jesus uh, spoke about this place 11 times, uh, as we see in the Gospels, 11 times. And what did he say it was? It was a place that represented a never-ending torment, and he called it hell. And so some people today say, is hell real? I believe it is absolutely a real physical place because Jesus said it was. And if you do not know Christ, that is the destination of those who would say to God, I don't want your way, I'll choose my way. And so today I say to all who are here and those who are watching, choose Jesus. Because the option is not good. Here's the main point. The tongue can be used as Satan's tool. It can be used to fulfill hell's purposes, Satan's purposes, which is to pollute, to corrupt, and to destroy. And mature believers will always be mindful of the fact that in our old nature, our our humanness, our tongues can have great power to devastate and therefore need the constant and guiding control of the Holy Spirit. May that be our prayer every morning. God, control and guide my tongue. May my heart live out a worldview that says you are king and you are in control. Proverbs 15, 2 says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Pour out folly. How many people have been crippled or killed with our words? Just crushed. Even more personal are our kids dying a slow death because we have a lethal lexicon that flows out of our mouth. How do you speak 
to your children? What do you speak to your children? How do you guide your children as they are learning the, the, the course of this world? How do we live? How do we speak it out? So we've seen the power of the tongue used to direct. We've seen the power of the tongue used to destroy. Now, lastly, let's look at the tongue, how it can be a powerful tool used to delight. Uh, Verses 9 and 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be So our mouths reflect uh, the dichotomy of our hearts. Uh, It's a hypocrisy sometimes, isn't it? At one point we say, God is great, God is holy, God is awesome. And then we go to someone and we say, terrible words. Maybe they're not outright in your faith words, but they have a slight edge to it that says, we're not that pleased with who they are or how they are. Our mouths often reflect a dichotomy of our worldview. We can at one point be speaking well of God and then then speak these words that tear down. That is, when the Holy Spirit is not guiding the rudder or not guiding the bit of our lives. And James skillfully illustrates this one more time. He gives us one more illustration that helps us understand this, this dual issue we're talking about. He says in verse 11, 12, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grape vine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The tongue is small. The tongue is influential. The tongue must be controlled The tongue must be corralled and the tongue must be cleansed. It makes me think of Isaiah when he saw that great image of God high and lifted up and it wasn't till the angel came and put the coal on his tongue that he was able to really speak for God. It was transformed. Have we allowed God to place that coal on our heart so that our tongues might be transformed? If our tongues are to be tamed, we need to each day to call upon the Holy Spirit to be our guide and our influence. Have we got that? Every day. Life is a daily, moment by moment, uh, thing that we have to make choices. Every day, every moment of every day. Choices, choices, choices. And these choices, Paul equated to walking. He said in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Very clearly says this world has a way of doing things and that's the way you used to be. Now you're dead to that. And then he says in Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Maybe that's the problem. Do you sense the calling of God in your life as a follower of Jesus? Do you recognize the calling of God in your life as a follower of Jesus to represent our Heavenly Father in a way that brings Him glory? To walk in a manner 
worthy. And therefore, as Christians, we have a choice to walk under the control and direction of the Holy Spirit or walk by our own wills and ways, which leads to a lack of peace, lack of power, and a lack of purpose. When we are under the control of the Holy Spirit and our tongues are under the control of the Holy Spirit, we have great power and great purpose because it's infused by the Holy Spirit. I, I, as I was researching, doing it, I came across a little acronym. I remember it as a kid. Do you remember this acronym about uh, how uh, when you were a kid, you were taught maybe how to uh, use your tongue better? The acronym was THINK. Teachers, do you remember THINK? If we use this, maybe we can all use it because I, I, I actually thought it was pretty good for me. THINK. T, is it true? When we're about to use our, our tongues and our words, is it true? Two, is it helpful? Is it inspiring? I like that one because I think I want everyone to leave my presence having a sense that God was w with us in that conversation, in that interaction. True, helpful, inspiring. Uh, here's a good one. Is it necessary? Some things are true and inspiring, and what, but is it necessary right here and right now? to say that thing. And lastly, of course, is it kind? Think. Is it kind? Right now, in this room, for some of you, it could be a defining moment. Will you agree with me that the Bible teaches, and therefore I can trust it, it says that the heart is Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah talks about this. And if the heart is desperately wicked, I need God's help. God's help says, if you call on Jesus, for all who put their faith in Jesus by calling upon him and trusting in him, they will be saved. And then your heart is transformed. And you begin the lifelong journey of discovering who you have become. The second thing I want us to think about today is, Christian, will you make it a practice each day to give over your tongue to the Holy Spirit, that little member of your body? And if the Holy Spirit controls your tongue, it is more likely he is going to control all of you. Will you do, as Peter so poignantly says, Will we keep in step with the Holy Spirit? And I usually say lockstep because what Peter gives us is an image of a, a, a troop marching together in perfect lockstep. Will I keep in lockstep with the Holy Spirit this morning and this day? If we do, we will always leave people wanting more of Jesus and more of the Father because they can see him in us and in what we say, right? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for uh, how you teach us so clearly through these uh, writers of your word. We pray today that our tongues uh, will not uh, be far from our thought process, that we recognize that what comes out of our mouths 
originated in our worldview and in our heart. And if our hearts have not been transformed by a relationship with Christ and the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can never tame the tongue. But by the Holy Spirit working in and through us, our tongues can be used as a vessel for blessing and not cursing. So today, may our church be really distinguished by being a place of blessing where people leave having heard words of encouragement and inspiration uh, that you have a plan for their lives and a purpose. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.